4: From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Asian-American-owned small businesses have been especially hard hit by the economic downturn. And those that are still open are wondering if they can survive this next virus surge and the lockdowns coming with it. Asian neighborhoods lost customers before other commercial areas. And vandalism and racist attacks have taken a toll. Add to that, many have received little government aid. We look at the ways the pandemic has uniquely affected Asian-American small businesses. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Asian American small business owners began seeing drops in revenue and foot traffic well before the March lockdowns, as early reports of a virus originating in China prompted people to shun U.S. Chinatowns, Koreatowns, and other Asian ethnic neighborhoods out of fear or just racism. It's one of many ways the pandemic has more sharply affected Asian American communities compared to other commercial areas. As the pandemic drags on and the virus surges again, a growing number of restaurants, nail salons, dry cleaners, and other businesses, many in California, are closing their doors. Others are barely hanging on. Joining me now is Brandon Ju, executive chef and owner of Mr. Ju's in San Francisco's Chinatown, and Mama Huhu in the Richmond District in San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining us, Brandon Ju. Thanks for having me. Can you describe what you were noticing in San Francisco's Chinatown in the weeks before the March lockdown?
2: Yeah, there was I mean there was a significant um noticeable slowdown in in the neighborhood. Um you know, that's a probably part of it has to do with uh the tourism, um the hotels um you know, just above Chinatown, a lot of them were not uh getting their normal tourism. Um and then downtown, a lot of the uh, the tech companies were telling their you know their their employees to stay home. Um, those are basically the two surrounding neighborhoods, um, and then everything else within Chinatown. Um, you know, a lot of the businesses there, um, you know, really rely on foot traffic and rely on tourism, and so um, those first couple of weeks were 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 noticeable. Um, and I think the community kind of came together to try to um, really uh, encourage people that that you know this is this is not any more risk than going out to any other neighborhood and um, you know shortly thereafter uh, you know, San Francisco was put on a shut, you know, a, a closure. So
4: yeah, um, I remember Speaker Pelosi tried to drum up some support for San Francisco's Chinatown as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, we we really appreciated that because you know, um, I think we we just didn't know really what to do um, mm-hmm. outside of you know saying that we needed help or that this is you know you know you don't have to worry. Um, I, I think you know this this neighborhood has. Um yeah, it had some uh, just different circumstances that has added on to the pressure of staying open as a business within Chinatown.
4: Yes. And, and anybody who's been to San Francisco's Chinatown knows that it is normally a very bustling place. Storefronts are are packed tightly together. And I mean, your restaurant is there. And given that fact, you know, there's not a lot of space for outdoor dining. How did you adapt when restaurants had to close their services?
2: Well, it hasn't been a simple answer, um, and it hasn't been a consistent answer um, that I can give you. Um, you know, every every week or two, it seems like we're having to adjust. Um, you know, luckily, uh, my neighbors um, allowed me to build our outdoor dining into you know their uh, storefronts as well, so um, we have uh, our street, Waverly Place. Kind of, you know, we have a we have a pretty good size outdoor seating. Um, but as of now, like, you know, what I'm trying to deal with is is the weather, um, because we can't seat anyone inside now. Um, we're all having to kind of shift gears, and and I think there's a decision to be made, uh, and I think you can see some of the operators in San Francisco deciding already to either close for the rest of the year and try to wait it out. Um, you know, the PPP is something that we just came out of. So we're, um, you know, two weeks out of our PPP.
4: Your loan you mean from the federal government?
2: Right. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't been at a break even the entire time of having PPP. And, um, so Hanging on is 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 becoming harder and harder. Um, You know, the weather, um, the the condition of 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 just um, how how the health is right now. A lot of people are just not choosing to come out again. So it it feels like the beginning of the pandemic in a way again. um, All over again. Where? Yeah, all over again. Yeah.
4: And in many ways, though. Do you feel like you've been luckier than others? I mean, you have been able to get your neighbors to help you uh, to use the outdoor space in front of them. You were able to get a PPP loan, even with all the challenges yeah. you've had.
2: Yeah, and I think when, when you know, when, when talking about some of the businesses within Chinatown, getting, getting that information and the access to uh, the PPP, um, just knowing um, how to apply, um, you know, fulfilling an application correctly and then receiving the loan, um, that, that was a juggling act in itself. Um, so I think, you know, luckily we we have organizations like CCDC in Chinatown that, that has really tried to, um, just keep businesses in Chinatown aware of the options they have and, and how to navigate, um, but I I do feel lucky. I feel lucky um, that I have a, you know, a good relationship with my landlord um, that, that, yeah, uh, my neighbors have supported the outdoor seating, um, but it it still might not be enough. And I, I think that's, that's the disheartening part is, is, you know, we've been really trying to put a good effort into staying open. And most of that is a responsibility I feel for my, my, my employees and also, kind of my position in Chinatown, just wanting to stay open for, um, uh, I don't know, just trying to, 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 um, Care for uh, us. be, yeah, just trying to be a, like an inspiration to, to other businesses, trying to, trying to persevere through this. Um, but I think, it, you know, these next couple of weeks are going to be extremely challenging and, mm-hmm. um, we'll have a lot of decisions to be made.
4: Yes. What are your concerns just last question to you Brandon about the potential cultural losses if many Chinatown businesses don't survive the pandemic. I know you've expressed concern about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, Chinatown um you know has 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 persevered through a lot over its over its um history and um even the the, the maybe you know concern of gentrification over the last, you know, five to 10 years within San Francisco, Chinatown has kept a lot of its uh, character. And um, I think uh, the concern is that, that this Chinatown, San Francisco Chinatown is, is like, to me, like the, the example of, of, of Chinatowns across the world and to lose the culture in such a, a like a landmark um, neighborhood um, would be would be a huge loss and i think there's a lot of concern for that because of the empty storefronts and who is going to you know invest in in chinatown for for the next um next generation of operation um and also how we are going to keep um i, I think that the people of chinatown supported um because they you know that neighborhood um has its own unique challenges as well. So, um, yeah, yeah.
4: Well, Brandon Ju, thank you so much for sharing that, and, and best of luck to you.
2: Thank you. Thanks,
4: Brandon Ju, executive chef and owner of Mr. Jew's in San Francisco's Chinatown and Mama Hoo in the Richmond District in San Francisco. Joining me now is Francis Nguyen, freelance journalist and author of the recent Vox article, The Invisible Struggle of the Asian American Small Business Owner, and Stella Yee, Assistant Professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us, Stella Yi. Thank you. Hi. Thanks and, for having me. And thanks for being here, Francis Nguyen. Thank you so much for having me. Sally, as you listen to Brandon Jew, it sounds like you've documented similar experiences in New York City's Chinatown.
5: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was really interesting hearing Brandon's dialogue because it it just rang sort of true to what we had been hearing in March and April um, in New York City, anecdotally from our community partners, um, that the Chinese ethnic neighborhoods were really suffering with regards to the different food businesses just. You know, places, place after place after place was shuttered and shuttered. And, um, you know, we really wanted to do something to help, uh, help the community, help support the community. And what we do at the in our section is, is we really utilize data. And um, I thought, you know, why not use this as a, as a way to help the community gather up some data so that they actually have objective information to advocate for themselves? Um, so, the study that we undertook, uh, we call it the NYU COVID closure study or COCLO, and our hypothesis was that two Chinatowns in New York City, the Chinatown in Manhattan and the Chinatown in Brooklyn, which is known as Sunset Park, were being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 with regards to closures of food retail stores, grocery, which includes grocery stores, restaurants and um, small produce vendors or small fruit, fresh fruits and vegetable vendors. Um, so essentially what we did was we created a, a natural experiment study with comparison groups uh, where we could, where we could assess that hypothesis. And um, unfortunately what we found is, was, was that we did have support for our, our, our thinking in the sense that um, the closures of restaurants, grocery stores, and produce vendors was disproportionately higher in uh, both Chinatowns compared to both higher and lower resource neighborhoods within Manhattan and Brooklyn. So in Manhattan, we compared Chinatown and Manhattan to the Upper East Side, which is a higher resource neighborhood, and to East Harlem, which is a lower resource neighborhood. And similarly in Brooklyn, we compared Sunset Park to. Um, to Park Slope, which is a higher resource neighborhood, and to Brownsville, which is a lower resource neighborhood, and I think what was what was it was it was really sad actually when we when we got the results um, because we know that we knew that there are so many people that were hurting and the thing that really struck us was not only that the proportion of businesses that were closing was higher across all of the different categories. But the, the, the sheer number of people that were being affected, the sheer number of businesses that were being affected in Chinatown versus these other neighborhoods was just much larger like on the magnitude of like ten. Yes. Um, so it, it it was it was interesting to see all of that.
4: Right. And as the pandemic wore on we started to see just skyrocketing unemployment rates and The length of time that Asian-Americans have been unemployed, being longer than other racial groups. We're going to dig into more of the reasons behind all of this after the break. We're talking with Stella Yee of NYU's Grossman School of Medicine and Frances DeWin, a freelance journalist. Her recent Vox piece is The Invisible Struggle of the Asian-American Small Business Owner. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stop AAPI Hate has documented nearly twelve hundred hate incidents just in California through September. Nearly 40% occurred at Asian American businesses. And that's what we're talking about this hour. The particular challenges Asian American small businesses have faced during the pandemic. We're talking with Francis Nguyen, a freelance journalist, and Stella Yi, assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU's Grossman School of medicine and you our listeners are with us. What are your questions, comments? What are you doing to support Asian American businesses in your community? Or are you an Asian American small business owner who has struggled during the pandemic With a story to share, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Sally, just continuing uh, what you were telling us about what happened in New York's Chinatown, I mentioned some stats about... uh, hate incidents in California at Asian American businesses. Do you think that was a factor in the kind of disproportionate impact that you were seeing in New York City?
5: No, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that that was actually our driving hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because if you were actually to consider, um, there is data to show the, the, the comeback that different minority owned businesses made after the Great Recession, for example. Um, and it, actually, the data shows that Asian-American owned businesses were more likely to come back faster than other minority owned businesses following the Great Recession. And so the question remains for COVID, because as you mentioned before we went on break, there have been sort of these longer term implications of, you know, what Brandon has experienced um, on like boots on the ground, what we're observing within the data that we collected um, now, this is sort of this longer-term lived experience that is playing out, and we see that the unemployment rates are persisting for Asian Americans, that the, that the Asian American-owned small businesses are not receiving as many PPP loans as other minority-owned businesses, nor is there as much attention being put, pay, paid to Asian Americans as the community of color within the entire COVID-19 pandemic. So, um I I think, you know, as much as you could say that there are lots of factors that created more closures within Chinatown. So to sort of echo what what Brandon was saying, um, at least Chinatown in Manhattan is also adjacent to um, a major business district. It's very adjacent to the financial district in New York City, where there are lots of large offices. And of course, with with shutdown in March and April and, and throughout the summer, there was a lot less of those. Um, business commuters coming in and and going into Chinatown to eat. But that's not the only factor, right? Because we did observe the closures to be disproportionately higher in Sunset Park as well. So I think there's that piece of evidence. There's the piece of evidence that Asian Americans, you know, again, as I mentioned, they, they kind of bounced back more quickly after the great recession and then they're not in this situation. So, you know, you don't necessarily have um, all of the like, you know, causal, pieces you need to be able to like point your finger at xenophobia but you're when you start to have this mounting evidence towards it um you can you can sort of feel like that i hope that i hope that sort of answers your question i couldn't definitively say that but it certainly feels that way
4: no and it's also a very hard thing to definitively pinpoint as well but i think the evidence that you're talking about is quite persuasive francis Nguyen. you also besides uh looking at the restaurant industry and also finding, of course, you know, similar things happening in Koreatown, in Los Angeles, and many prominent longtime Korean restaurants struggling to stay open or having to close their doors, you also took a look at the nail salon industry. And I was stunned by this stat in your piece that in California, approximately 80% of the state's 11,000 nail salons are owned and operated by Vietnamese Americans. Can you tell us about some of the challenges that nail salons have faced?
3: Absolutely. Um, I think we can start off by, um, I guess, piggybacking on Stella's point about, um, I guess, correlative data when we look at um, xenophobia and how it has affected um, larger Asian-American businesses. Um, Obviously, Vietnamese people are not Chinese. And yet, um, you know, that distinction does not exist um, at this time um, when we're looking at anti-Asian sentiment um, related to this pandemic. So for the nail salons, um, I spoke um, to a mutual aid group um, that is assisting um, nail salon owners predominantly in um, Orange County, California, uh, where... Little Saigon is the largest um, diasporic Vietnamese community outside of Vietnam. And they have experienced um, a loss of business um, around the same time that um, I'm seeing most Chinatown communities have. So that's you know at least a month um, before all of the stay at home orders were implemented, not just in California, but across the country. So when we think of nail salons, you know, we already instinctively think of who that nail salon uh, staff and owner is. And, you know, more often than not, they are Vietnamese. And ethnically, you know, um, the association is, um, you know, in terms of, um, I guess, uh, if we're looking at discrimination, you know, the the connections between Vietnamese, East Asian, you know, Chinese, like it all, it all just, you know, groups together. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, I, I hate going back to, um, you know, speaking about the monolith, but it certainly is the case here in terms of um, discrimination and the impact it has on, um, on Asian American industries and the nail salon industry is not exempt.
4: Yeah, and it sounds like, Francis Nguyen, that in Orange County in particular, there was a larger proportion of people who were anti-mask, for example. Did Vietnamese Mm -hmm. nail salon owners experience any challenges related to that?
3: Absolutely. I mean, um, workers are already wearing masks, um, and this was outside of the pandemic. Um, But um, when the state allowed nail salon um nail salon businesses to reopen um we did experience a few um instances of you know um i guess anti mask outrage and um you know several have been reported to have been taking place within these businesses um but for the most part um, that um, you know, industry workers were aware of that and they didn't want to provoke and attack themselves, like already knowing that they are loosely associated with um, with the virus. Um, they didn't want to, um, you know, uh, cause a scene, so to speak, by um, enforcing these mask rules. So a lot of them just, you know, let people um, walk in without masks and still serve them
4: so they felt like they had to put their their health at risk essentially because they were concerned about about anti-Asian sentiment that was growing around this virus. Again, Frances Nguyen is a freelance journalist and her Vox piece is the invisible struggle of the Asian American small business owner. We're also talking with Stella Yi, Assistant Professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU. And also you, our listeners are with us again if you wanna weigh in, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. And you can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And Stella, I'm struck by one of the things that you had said earlier. Could we dig in a little bit more as to why Asian American communities have such a hard time accessing financial relief, given that there was attention paid to small businesses?
6: Yeah, so this is
5: actually a really interesting question. And, of course, I think it goes back, you know, to pre-COVID times. So you know, the area that I focus on is, is health research. And so I know statistics about health research, but these are lessons that sort of can be broadly applied across other disciplines as well. So in pre-COVID times, there is sort of um, this, this understanding that, that Asian Americans don't need support or help from federal government services. Um, from, again, from the health perspective and the social services perspective, um, in New York City, for example, Asian Americans are actually the highest poverty racial ethnic minority group, and this is something this is a statistic that is often met with surprise um, yes. because you know Asian Americans are, are considered considered the model minority, and so um right.
4: they're stereotyped so to be extremely and- well off. Just really quickly on that stat though, is what happens is the fact that there's such high uh, income inequality in the in the community and such a aggregation of data, that it sort of hides this large proportion of people who are in poverty?
5: Yes, that's certainly, I mean, the income inequality actually helps to highlight the fact that there are a large proportion at the bottom end of the socioeconomic distribution. What the model minority does and the, the, the aggregated data, what those things do is there tends to be attention paid to the people who are at the highest end of the economic spectrum. Right. So from a social services perspective, you know, Asian Americans in New York City make up 15% of the population. And yet in an analysis that was done by the Asian American Federation of New York a few years ago, they found that about 2% of dollars that are given by um, government and, and citywide organizations to social service organizations serving Asian American communities, is, it's about 2%. So you would expect those proportions, the 15% and the 2% to actually be proportionate to each other, but they're not. Um, so, you know, pre-COVID, there was already an ignorance about um, Asian-American health disparities, about Asian-American disparities. So it doesn't surprise me that with COVID, you know, so you already have you already have that impact going in. Right. We're already getting less than other racial ethnic minority groups or other or the majority white group as well. In terms of resources from federal government agencies, you put on top of that the xenophobia, which, um, you know, to Francis's point is not being you know, discriminately applied only to Chinese Americans. It's being applied to anyone who sort of looks East Asian. Um, and then you sort of have the double whammy. And I think the unfortunate thing about all of this is that, you know, on the one hand, we, we hear about lots of grassroots efforts to sort of elevate the community, because there aren't these structural resources going into the communities. And then the, the you know, the, the coverage that gets put out there is like, oh, look at how resilient these like model minority communities are, they're really pulling themselves, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And so it sort of perpetuates that whole cycle of, you know, the, the community not needing help, not having resources, but then pulling themselves up because they have no other option, quite frankly. And then, um, you know, the public then similarly not paying attention to them.
4: So it's sort of a vicious cycle. Well, Cynthia tweets, helping Asian American owned businesses is so important. They're facing closures, racism and lack of access to funds. You know, Stella, you wondering if you can speak to what we've been hearing a lot more about and what's been exposed a lot more in reporting, which is the fact that actually a large proportion of Asian American uh, small business owners do not have ties to financial institutions, relationships with your sort of traditional financial service institutions like banks.
5: Yeah, so that's actually very interesting. I believe it was either in a report that it might have been in the report that McKinsey actually put out. They put out a nice report about the Asian American recovery, um, which and I know Paul Ong at UCLA has also done some work around the economic recovery. There is an interesting statistic that um, actually a higher proportion of Hispanic and Black owned businesses don't have relationships with banks, don't have the pre-existing relationship with, with, with banks. Whereas about seventy-five percent of Asian American-owned businesses ha- like do not have a relationship with a bank, so in actuality, a higher proportion of Asian American businesses could be benefiting from the PPP compared to other minority-owned businesses, um, which is just kind of striking.
4: And that a lot of times communities will actually—it's sort of these like informal banking systems that are are sort of created by uh, immigrant groups. A lot of East Asian immigrant groups as well, in terms of sort of creating these rotating, you know, cash credit associations that help each other get started. And that part of the support system that can be so vital when immigrants are trying to start a business can also completely diminish and go away extremely rapidly when everyone is experiencing a downturn sort of concurrently. Mm -hmm.
5: Sure, certainly. There's an actually, uh, there's a fascinating book, I haven't made my way through the entire book, but there's a book that uh, is called Eating Asian Diaspora, and the first chapter actually is about Cambodian-owned business, uh, donut businesses in the Los Angeles area and um, that exact same model of the sort of informal, like small loan internal sharing um, process. And so I I'd encourage anyone who's sort of interested to learn more about that to check that out.
4: Well, let me go to caller Henry in Grass Valley. Hi, Henry. Join us.
2: Oh hello! I just uh, noticed after thirty forty minutes of the show, nobody's mentioned Donald Trump's racist rant about the China flu and the Asian flu. I think that you got your guests are being a little bit too respectful of the, of the eight uh, hundred pound gorilla in the White House.
4: Uh, Henry, thanks. That's certainly something, Francis Darwin, that people are very aware of and don't and have pointed to as part of the reason.
3: I love how that was um, (laughs) was just explained the 800-pound gorilla. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think um, that did any Asian-American group any favors. Um, And um, it actually pairs quite nicely with um, the earlier media coverage of um, the coronavirus, what it is and where it came from. And um, I think one of the... um, one of the best cited examples was the New York Post um, earlier this year um, when they first uh, reported on the first confirmed case of coronavirus in Manhattan it was from um, the, the woman um, had contracted it from Iran. But the photo that they used was of a masked um, East Asian man um, crossing a sidewalk in Queens. Um, So the association has definitely um, been established very early on and the, you know, habitual drumming um, from this administration that this is a, you know, foreign-born, you know, foreign invasive um, disease certainly put a target on a lot of Asian Americans' backs.
4: And not only that, but I believe it was in your reporting where you felt like there was a connection between that and even distrust. If you did uh, hear about government aid, distrust of seeking it from the federal government.
3: Sure. I mean, um, I was mostly looking at uh, little Tokyo here in L.A. Um, who have had, you know, community members um, have gone back to, um, you know, our have gone back to the time of you know Japanese American internment, and you know there is historical precedent for distrust in the government and its um, its interest in certain communities. So um, that um, that distrust has certainly um, been revived um, during this pandemic, especially when you have you know the president of the United States. Um, saying that you are associated with this you know global pandemic that is threatening Americans right now. And certainly his rhetoric um, and that of his administration has um, has not only singled you out but also excluded you um, in who is being affected by this. So um, for Asian Americans who are listening, you know, Certainly a, a good number of us are saying, are hearing him and thinking when he's talking about, you know, this threat to Americans, he's not talking about us.
4: And then there were just sort of the traditional barriers of, for example, in language resources for mm-hmm. For Asian Americans, like the Small Business Association, not having options in Asian languages, and the PPP program only having documents in certain Asian languages. We're talking with Francis Nguyen, freelance journalist. Stella Yee, assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU. We're talking about the particular challenges Asian-American small businesses are facing with the pandemic that are often little understood. 866-733-6786 is the number to call to join the conversation. Again, 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. And you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the challenges Asian American small businesses have faced during the pandemic, and joining me now is Finny Fung, owner of Greenfish Seafood Market in Oakland. Thanks so much for joining us, Finny Fung. Hi. Uh, yes. Thank you. So, tell, Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about your fish market.
6: Yes. Uh, so, this is a seafood market. Uh, we have a lot of tanks. We have few dozens of tanks to keep alive seafood live. So from uh, California, Dungeness crab, all the way to Boston uh, lobster, Maine lobster. Uh, from wild fish to farm, uh, fish to fresh and frozen. Uh, we have fresh cut meat and produce. And this is uh, second generation. I'm um, second generation doing this. Um, I learned all this from my parents. And uh, it was a business that um, was sold from my parents to my husband.
4: And we didn't need my husband been doing this for 11 years. I understand also that a lot of your clientele were restaurants, uh, entities that hosted events like like weddings that you sold fish really to restaurants all over the Bay Area. So how has the pandemic affected you? Oh, yeah,
6: we pretty much lost all the restaurant customers. We have restaurants from Burling- Birmingham all the way to Pleasanton. And a lot of the seafood restaurants, they are uh, not only they sell seafood, they, they buy a live fish. A lobster a crab, and they put in their tank at the restaurant and sell live. So now um, they also hold a lot of Chinese wedding banquet, and usually the Chinese weddings they're huge. It could be two hundred to four hundred guests. Yes. So imagine every weekend, you know, some restaurant pick up a couple hundred pounds of live fish from us. But now, of course, you know, all the big banquet hall are closed, all the Chinese theme, some restaurant closed, and no weddings are held right now. So. Yeah, we lost all the restaurant customers.
4: How are you weathering those losses?
6: Uh, Well, now we rely on more food traffic due to the fact people are not going out to eat at restaurants, so now they have to cook at home more. We do see more uh, food traffic where people have to cook those items at home now. Um, People are really adventuring out. We just, you know, uh, a price had dropped, Uh, the secret price had dropped, which helped you know, uh, because it's not in high demand right now. It's with a large supply, so it's price drops. So we sometimes we have like good price for oysters and crab and a
4: wild fish, cheaper than before COVID. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and so now that the weather is colder, I mean, are you able to put your, your produce and some of the other things that you sell at the market, you know, outside? Oh, yes. So one thing great was that uh, this
6: Flex street permit was available. So once we found out uh, it's available to us, I jump on it and apply and got the permit. So right, right now we have more outdoor space. We use a uh, sp- uh, parking space to uh, extend another 25 feet of space into merchandise, which is great because it feels more of a, like a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. I'm produce. We already have storefronts to sell or item outdoor, but now we have extended space on the partlet. And mm-hmm. this, this I tried a lot of customers uh, I tried a lot of new customers because they look for bargains right now, especially, you know, right now people are watching the budget. So China will know for like, a great bargain place to get groceries because mainly all here, people here are uh, family-owned business owner works seven days a week, long hours to cut staff so, you know, here is a bargain.
4: Uh, Finny Fung, caller Zila in Oakland has a comment about Oakland Chinatown that I thought I might keep you on to take. Zila, join us. Yeah. Oh, hi. Thanks for
5: um, having me. I noticed um, living in Oakland and going to Chinatown and using their restaurants that actually that Chinatown is pretty swinging. It seems like it's thriving and that the community itself that lives around there is completely supporting it. It. I mean, I can't tell you how it was doing before the pandemic, but it doesn't look like it's it's in bad shape at all. And I'm just really happy to report that.
4: Well, Zila, thanks. I mean, Finney Fung, is that true? Do you think Oakland's Chinatown has somehow weathered this maybe a little bit better than neighboring Chinatowns and other cities?
6: Oh, wow. I mean, this community here, they're so strong. They're working so hard. There is some restaurants that are closed for good. But a lot of restaurants here, you know, just offering shorter hours, but they are still trying their best to do in in any way to still remain open. And that's, you know, they they drive so hard. Um,
4: Speaking of which, I heard that you're trying to get out on social media to try to sort of expand, (laughs) expand your clientele now that you are relying so much more on foot traffic. What are you doing?
6: Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, even though I'm not super active, but I am always posting new picture on Google, uh, my business Google account. So uh, because, you know, me and my husband, we speak English. We realized that we helped out a lot of American customer that comes in. Uh, our, our, our customer here is not just Chinese or Asian, but we have a lot of mixed groups. We have Americans come in here and look for crab and lobster, especially when it comes to the, all the American um, holidays. And, you know, let's say Labor Day, those they will go for oysters and Christmas, they look for crafts. So we are able to communicate with them and help them. So they keep coming back to us. They keep looking for me and they look for my husband, Eric. <laughs> so, yeah, we just want to expand our um, communication with everyone.
4: And I heard you got some help from an organization called Good Good Eats, an Oakland mm-hmm. project that has worked with Save Our Chinatowns. Did they help you out? And, and has it been beneficial, you think? Yeah, I mean they've been
6: pushing me to get more onto Instagram, showing uh, some cooking shows. Uh, <laughs> I really, uh, did a little bit of short, very short videos of, about educate people more about uh, wild fish and how to cook it. Um, yes, they they pretty much understand that what we need help in Chinatown is uh, you know especially some restaurants that hey get into the app so people can order online. You know, and then another thing is is that Chinatown here is pretty old school. Uh, but there is some second generation here that are getting into the app right away. I'm not using any app to sell my grocery, uh, but because my type of uh, seafood and produce is really people really want to see with their own eyes and pick with their own hands. Yes. So, yeah, they, well, they've been good, good.
4: It's been around to help us. Well, Finney Fung, really good to talk with you. Thanks so much. No problem. Finney Fong, owner of Greenfish Seafood Market in Oakland. And we're talking also with Francis Nguyen, freelance journalist, author of the Vox article, The Invisible Struggle of the Asian American Small Business Owner, and Cela Yi, assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And you our listeners are with us 866-733-6786 for your calls. Our email address, forum at kqed.org, or post your comments on Twitter. Or Facebook at KQED Forum. Mary Lee writes, This makes me so sad. I'm a seventy-five year old asthmatic stuck in my house and I'm dying to get back to my Vietnamese own nail salon, but it's just too dangerous and will be for the foreseeable future. Thankfully, we've been able to get takeout from Asian restaurants. How can we help keep these businesses alive? Stella, do you have any thoughts for Mary Lee?
5: Um, so, Marilee, I don't know where you're located, but I will say that there in New York City, there, and I think there are in San Francisco as well. Um, there are a lot of different grassroots efforts to to help contribute to these to these um, to these neighborhoods and to these businesses. Uh, there is one in particular. They they're called Welcome to Chinatown, and they started out actually as just sort of a um, a, a way to. To get the, to get the word out to support a specific subset of the Chinatown businesses and I believe that they were actually helping sort of like a world central kitchen model where they were actually working with restaurants to help uh, produce meals for essential workers and now they've pivoted and I know they have a goFundMe page and they may have something more sophisticated at this point but they've pivoted to actually using their goFundMe funds to provide small loans to, to, to some of the business owners so I think um, you know, welcome to Chinatown is a great example. There's a couple other. Um, there's a couple other efforts. There's one called Heart of Dinner, which is being run by a restaurateur and her partner. Um, again, they were actually feeding um, homebound seniors. Uh, particularly, you know, the xenophobia. It, it it operates on a number of different levels, right? We've been talking about from a structural perspective. We've been talking about um, from the restaurant perspective or from the neighborhood perspective, but but really you know the xenophobia is 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 affecting older adults on a day-to-day basis as well you know from our community partners as not just not just folks that are serving the Asian American community but but folks who are just sort of working generally within Brooklyn for example they're telling us that it's the chinese older adults it's the asian older adults that are really really scared of going out of their homes so um you know there are this this heart of dinner organization is is fabulous because they were doing um home home delivered meals with, um, handwritten notes in, in simplified Chinese. Um, and so they also had a GoFundMe. There was another, it was a bakery owner who who set up shop. He literally just set it up shop and started handing out free food, um, to older adults, older adult residents within Chinatown. His name is Patrick Mock. Um, and he has, he also has a GoFundMe page. And then, um, lastly, there was yeah, there's a, there's a number of different grassroots efforts. Um, there really going on are to sort of help support.
4: And I did mention Good Good Eats, uh, Francis Nguyen, up here in the Bay Area. But I'm also wondering if there are other organizations or ways that people can help in Southern California that you came across quickly.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firstly, I do want to say that um, continuing to patron these businesses is certainly a way to help. Um, another being, as uh, uh, to Stella's point, um, supporting. Community care funds. There are plenty um, for um, nail salons, um, especially those in Southern California. There's the California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative, which has been um, running a community care fund to provide grants um, for manicurists across the state. Um, There's the, I know that the Oakland Chinatown Chamber of Commerce also has a recovery and resiliency fund. And the Little Little Tokyo um, Community Council also has one for small businesses in its community. So wherever you're based, Just, just look to these community councils and these mutual aid organizations. They will surely have, um, have some program running um, to support these businesses and keep them running.
4: Well, Michael tweets, fearing the March shutdown, I went to my Vietnamese stylist the Sunday before the shutdown. The only thing I could think to do when she reopened months later was to pay her double my usual amount. Sally, even though in even in addition to some of these direct supports, what? more broadly speaking, are also the things that need to happen to really help assist and understand the situation that Asian Americans are experiencing. I mean, I feel like one of the things that you've touched on is really just, you know, trying to uh, question this whole stereotype that Asian Americans are well off.
6: Um,
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually... Part of the first step in terms of understanding the conversation is understanding the fact that there is, as you mentioned earlier, this huge income inequality gap. Um, there are a high proportion of Asian Americans that are at that lower end of the lower end of the distribution, and I think really from a structural perspective, um, you know, Asian Americans are really not considered. And I sort of alluded to this before, but when we think about racial ethnic minorities in the United States and we think about diversity and we think about immigrant communities, I don't think people automatically think about Asian Americans as being a part of that conversation. And that's really what, you know, people need to start focusing on, right? That when we talk about minorities in this country, we need to be thinking about all of the different minority groups that are actually in this country, right? And not just focusing on Black and Latinx populations, which of course are, you know, they they also they are experiencing a disproportionate amount of the burden of COVID, for example, right? But I think um, just having a seat at the table is the first step for Asian Americans, right? For people to recognize that that they are not uniformly Asian Americans are not uniformly well off, right? There are a huge number of folks that um, you know are working their working really hard to make it here, um, and then at the end of the day, not receiving any kind of um, support from the federal government or even being shunned by the federal government to, the, to that previous caller's point, um, it, it's really a shame.
4: You mentioned early, Stella Yee, that Asian Americans tend to recover quickly. But one of the things that I have found concerning is that really a lot of experts say it could take years for many of the jobs that Asian Americans have lost to come back. Can you help us understand why that is, that this might not be that rapid recovery that we've seen before?
6: I think, you know, it's, it's really
5: complex, right? I think for all of the different reasons that we've sort of talked about already, right? Like there were a lot of um, implicit structural factors in place before COVID um, that were sort of uh, muddying the picture, so to speak, about the Asian American status within the country. Um, so that's number one. And then I think number two is with COVID, we have a president who is, who is openly anti China, who is openly pointing fingers at China, even during the presidential debates, you know, eight months later, um, in terms of the COVID crisis. And so that's leading to the rising xenophobia and anti Asian sentiment, um, across the country. And so, and then I think all of those sort of other structural disadvantages that have been, that have been raised on this call, right? It's the, um the lack of ppp loan information brochures in different languages um there's the lack of, there's a, a, a chilling effect of even reaching out for federal assistance because they're afraid that it's going to affect their immigration status or their their status of becoming citizens within this country um so it's really complicated it's it's all of those different things happening at the same time and i think um i i i can't say that i necessarily have an answer but i really feel like at least a very first step is for us to shine a spotlight on these on these issues so that people start paying attention.
4: Stella Yi, Assistant Professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Francis Nguyen, freelance journalist, thanks for joining us as well.
3: Thank you
4: so much. And please check out Francis' Vox piece, The Invisible Struggle of the Asian American Small Business Owner. And thanks to Blanca Torres for producing this segment. Now it's time to head into the weekend with another installment from our series, The Music Getting You Through 2020. This song was sent to us by listener Sasha.
2: Lately, I've been returning again and again to the album Like the River Loves the Sea by Joan Shelley. It has those warm acoustic textures and gorgeous mournful vocals that can make you ache like only the best folk and country music can. The lyrics of her song Teal in particular echoed my frustrations early on in the pandemic and again when our skies recently filled with ash. To tear apart summer's stuffy and stale rooms for fresh air and wind and waves.
7: To tear apart summer's stuffy and stale rooms. To tear apart summer's stuffy and stale rooms, the fresh air and wind and waves, the fresh air. Looking further into the distance, the bones in my neck lifted from their inward curving line. Oh, love, escape this inward life when you have spoiled it at the table. Child in a fit of protest, screaming out just to hear your name like a child.
4: That was Teal by Joan Shelley. Thanks to listener Sasha for sharing it with us. And if you want to hear all the songs listeners are recommending, check out and follow KQED's The Music Getting You Through 2020 playlist on Spotify. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editors, Dan Zoll. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin, and our intern is Jameson Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. And this week we also got production help from Raquel Maria Dillon. I'm Nina Kim. Thanks so much for listening to Forum, and have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED
1: Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.